0: Father, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness and your love to us. God, even in Advent where we remember that we are a waiting people, that the, the universe, the cosmos, has not yet arrived at the final destination of the fullness of your kingdom, which will break out in all creation God, we pray that you would continue to make us a people that long and that ache and that pray your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. And we pray, oh God, that even tonight as we sit before your word, that your kingly power would break into our hearts and our lives and that your voice would speak and that you would make us attentive to your voice and that in attending to your voice that you would change us and shape us, and encourage us, and reinvigorate our hope. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. So throughout Advent, we have been in a series together entitled, All is Calm. And of course, this series title is taken from what is arguably the most loved, the most well-known, the most sentimental of all of the Christmas hymns, Silent Night, Holy Night, All is, all. All is Bright. And one of the things that we pointed out week after week is that although that may be one of the most popular and sentimental of all the Christmas songs, it is also the most ironic because that first Christmas morning was anything but calm. And it's interesting because throughout the Christmas story, what we see woven, the most common, the most frequent command is the command, do not be afraid. And that's, of course, because the the situation around them had evoked much fear, and so the question that we have been asking throughout this Advent season is as we enter into a Christmas uh, in a year where all is not calm, how is it that we can find the message of Christmas, a message that helps us overcome our own fear and our own anxiety? And to help us explore that question this morning, I want to just draw your attention to a beautiful little phrase in the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we heard it read just a few minutes ago. But this phrase, I think, captures for us what is arguably the most compelling and the most longed-for promise of Christmas. And let's set this, this little phrase in its context. So, of course, Jesus is born, and he's wrapped in swaddling clothes, and he's lying in the manger because there was no place for him in the inn. And then the, the camera kind of pans out into the fields outside in Jerusalem or outside the fields of Bethlehem. And it says this, and in the same region, there were shepherds in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, an angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. Is anybody hearing Linus right now? And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign to you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then right at that moment, suddenly, there was with that one angel an entire flood of angels. And they filled the skies on that Bethlehem night With the the words of this song saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The angels declare in this song, in this very moment, they say, here is what Christmas is about. Here is what Christmas means for everything. It means glory and praise to God in heaven and it means peace on earth for those with whom God is pleased. Here is what Christmas means for all of us tonight. It means peace on earth. You know, this is arguably the most compelling and the most longed-for promise of Christmas. I mean, don't you long for peace on earth? I mean, you're worrying and you're anxious in your bed at night. Your stomach is in knots and your mind is a whirl and you're feeling so anxious. Don't you long for peace of mind? And when you cover your ears because you don't want to hear your parents yell at each other anymore, don't you just long for peace in your home? And when you're surrounded by incessant relational drama with your roommates, don't you just long for peace in the dorm? And when you can't shut off those those incessant voices of self-hatred and negativity in your head, don't you just long for peace in your soul? And after this last election cycle, don't you long for a civil and peaceful nation to inhabit. And after reading a thread of vitriol and hate on social media, I mean, don't you just long for peace on earth? And after, you know, riots and looting and guns and violence and and reading the news and everything that's there, don't you just long for peace on earth? I mean, this promise of peace on earth has got to be the most longed for promise of Christmas. But although it is the most compelling, the most longed for, it is arguably the most elusive of all of the promises at Christmas. You know, true confession, I'm a pastor. I've been a Christian for decades now, but I have always been less than satisfied by how we Christians often talk about peace. Because very often we'll use cliche phrases like this, you know, it doesn't matter what's happening around you. You can know peace within you. And I think the reason why I've always found that Less than satisfying is, it is the very things going on around me that actually disturb and rob the peace within me. You know, don't you find that to be the case? You know, what is it that causes the anxiety in your hearts? Is it not that you're worried about your checking account? Will there be enough to pay rent? Or will my business survive? Or maybe you're cooking for your mother-in-law at Christmas. Is she going to like it? Or about your marriage, I mean, some of you don't know whether or not you'll have a marriage next year. Or you're in angst over that hard conversation with somebody you manage and it's left your stomach in knots. Or you've got work to get done or you've gotta go shopping and and get a gift for your wife. I mean, face it, husbands, you blew it last year. You settled for that Kirkland gift card rather than that thoughtful gift that you picked out just for her. And you're worried like, is she gonna like it? And there's things it's the things around us that rob the peace within us. And I don't know about you, but I have never found it easy like a light switch simply to turn off the fears and the anxieties. I mean, does it work like that for you? You know, this promise of peace, it's got to be the most compelling, the most longed-for promise of Christmas, but it's also the most elusive. And in many ways, it is the promise that is most dissonant with our own experience of the world. You know, it seems like there's this disconnect between this claim and the world we actually inhabit day by day. And you know, a lot of our best Christmas songs pick up on this dissonance. You know, one of my favorite uh, Christmas songs is I Hear the Bells on Christmas Day, and I think the best version of that song is done by the best Christmas artist we have, Justin Bieber. I'm just kidding, it's actually by Johnny Cash. You know, if all country music sounded like Johnny Cash, I would love country music, but it doesn't. But you know, the original poet who penned the song, I Heard the Bills on Christmas Day, lived back in the 19th century around the Civil War, And he lost his wife around Christmas due to a fire in his home, and she died in his arms. And then a few days later, he went to visit his son in a Civil War hospital, and his son had lost a couple limbs. And he goes home depressed, and he's sitting in the dark on his couch, and he hears the bells on Christmas Day. And he writes these words, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet, the song repeats of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then the song takes this darker turn. And he says, and in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong that mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And I think all of us at some point have experienced this disconnect between this promise of peace and the world we inhabit and the world we know going on within our own souls and lives. And we ask the question, what does it mean that Christ brought peace on earth at Christmas? And why don't I experience more of it? And how can I experience more peace in my heart and life? I mean, God knows I need it. And God knows we all need it this year in particular. Amen? And so to explore that question, I, want to just, I just want to um, point out three things from this text. Number one, I want you to observe what this peace on earth is not. Second, we'll see what it is. And finally, we'll see something of how we can experience it. First, I want you to observe what this peace on earth is not. You know, at the beginning, this first night of his birth, the song breaks out about peace on earth. And on the very last night before his death, Jesus speaks these words. He says, my peace, I give you. My peace, I leave with you. And then he says this, not as the world gives, do I give it to you. Neither let your hearts be troubled, nor let them be afraid. He says, the peace that I have come to bring is not as the world gives. In other words, he's contrasting his peace with worldly peace. And it's interesting because in Luke 2, I think Luke is actually drawing out something of a similar contrast. Because actually Luke sets his story of the birth of Jesus in contrast or set against another figure that loomed large in the ancient world, namely Caesar Augustus. Listen to how the story of Jesus' birth begins. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Everybody in the ancient world knew Caesar Augustus. And I think Luke is drawing something of a contrast between Caesar Augustus and the peace he is bringing and Jesus and the peace that he is bringing. You know, as you explore a little bit more about the ancient world and particularly about Caesar Augustus, what you learn is that he ascended to power amidst a bunch of chaos and violence in the Roman Empire. And when he came into power, he delivered finally a cessation to the hostilities, and he brought peace. And he began to take titles for himself. And as we study the ancient world, we learn about some of these titles. You may have heard of them before. One of the titles was Son of God. Another was Lord. Another was Savior. In fact, at his birth, uh, they, they discussed the good news of the birth of Caesar. And, of course, the gift that Caesar Augustus brought to the ancient world, according to Caesar, was the Pax Romana. It was the Roman peace. And there was a, there was a statue that exalted the goddess of peace just outside of the gates of Rome, to say this is the peace that I, Caesar, your Lord, your savior, the son of God has come to bring to the world. And I think Luke directly contrasts what who Caesar is with who Jesus is. In some sense, I think he's saying Caesar is the parody of which Christ is the true. Christ is the true Lord, the true savior, the true prince of peace. He is the true son of God who has come to bring true peace in the world. And the peace that Christ brings could not be any more different than the worldly peace that Caesar brought. You see, what was the, the, the peace that Caesar brought? How did he bring it? He brought it through military violence, through stomping out his inner enemies and instilling fear in anybody who would threaten his kingdom. In other words, he brought peace through coercive power and violence. How is it that Jesus' peace breaks into the world? It is not through coercive power and violence. Jesus brings his peace into the world through self-giving, sacrificial, sin-bearing love. His is a peace that enters into the world through forgiveness and truth and grace and love. And this is the peace Christ brings into the world. And so I think Luke is contrasting the peace that Jesus has come to bring set over against worldly peace, which in this case came through coercive power. Now, of course, in our lives, most of us don't wield a military. I mean, there was Larry James, but most of us don't wield a military power But you know, we can use coercive force in our own ways, in our own homes, in order to maintain a semblance of control and peace. Sometimes it's by raising our voice, sometimes it's by making us walk on eggshells around you. Nobody's gonna disturb you or else you're gonna fly off the handle. And of course, that's not the only way we seek to maintain control and peace in our environment. It's not just through coercive force, that's one way of worldly peace. There are other means. Sometimes we avoid conflict altogether. And in that way, we're not actually creating or making real peace. We are maintaining a semblance of peace by avoiding conflict. I wonder how many of you might try to avoid conflict. That's kind of my go-to because I'm one of those people, you know, I'm a third born. Or I was the youngest child, also the third born. And as the youngest child, I like people to like me, I think. And so that means I don't like to disturb other people and insult people. Well, sometimes I do. But you know, um, you can want to be liked and you can avoid conflict. That's one way to maintain a worldly kind of peace. Sometimes we try to maintain peace in our lives, like we deal with our anxieties and worries by escape, by binging Netflix. Some of you have been binging way too much Netflix during COVID the last eight months. Uh, or by binging YouTube or by just incessant you know, absorption of internet and distractions and entertaining ourselves to death. Or maybe by narcoticizing your own anxieties with another drink or with pain medications. But all of us have ways of dealing with our own anxieties and seeking to create peace. And Jesus is contrasting, I think Luke in our text is contrasting the peace Jesus has brought with worldly peace that actually isn't true peace, which then re- brings us to our second question. If that's what his peace is not, what is the peace that Jesus came to bring? We'll look back at the text. He says this in Verse 11. He says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Here he associates Christ with the peace Christ will bring. Christ, of course, is not Jesus's last name. You know, Jesus, Christ was his title. And it's taken from an Old Testament word named Messiah, which was a reference to the Jewish king. And so when he connects here, when he talks about peace, he is connecting it to the whole story of the Old Testament and the longed-for, hoped-for Jewish Messiah and the kind of peace that he would bring. You know, throughout the Old Testament, there's this promise that Messiah would come and he would be, quote, called the Prince of Peace and he would usher in a government of eternal peace. And look at how he puts it in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. We read this a couple of weeks ago, but let's just go through it again. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. You know, there is one true king, one true Lord in this world, and they are not put in power through uh, uh, through democratic election or through the electoral college. There's one electoral vote that goes toward this king, and it's the electoral vote of the father, and he has declared that his son Jesus is the true king over everything, And he has given this title the Prince of Peace because ultimately he will usher in a kingdom that is marked by peace. But let's just press this further. Let's talk a little bit more about this kingdom of peace that Jesus came to bring. When it speaks here of the Prince of Peace and the kingdom of of peace, the Hebrew word used to describe peace is that Hebrew word shalom. Can we all say that together? Shalom. Under your mask, let's say it again, shalom. Yeah, that's, that's a good word. It's a beautiful word. You know, the Hebrew concept of shalom, it went far beyond our concept of peace. Most of the time when we talk about peace, for example, when we talk about a peace treaty, what we're talking about is the cessation of hostilities. But the Hebrew idea of shalom went way beyond the cessation of hostilities, and it reached to the presence of something good and beautiful and whole. In other words, it wasn't just about ending conflict. It was about inaugurating and bringing in delight and human flourishing and shalom. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann describes shalom like this. He says, shalom is a persistent vision of joy, well-being, harmony, and prosperity that resists all our tendencies to division, hostility, fear, drivenness, and misery. Shalom is the way things ought to be in God's world. Shalom is what God will bring into God's own world. You know, one of my favorite uh, metaphors and pictures of shalom in the Old Testament comes to us in this little passage in Isaiah, and it says this. Speaking of Jesus, the true king, the prince of peace, will judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's interesting, he takes these uh, instruments of warfare, spears and swords, and he says, they're gonna take these instruments that were formerly used for destruction, and they're gonna turn them in to farming utensils. And what do the farming tools do? Well, whereas the tools of war bring destruction, the farming tools cultivate and they bring health and life and flourishing. And the vision of the future kingdom of God is a day when all of those old instruments of destruction, all of our destructive words and patterns and relationships and marriages, everything that robs us and disturbs us, it'll be taken away and in in its place will be put all that makes for human delight and joy and flourishing and goodness in God's world. And that's the vision of the future kingdom of God. But here's the interesting thing, going back to our text. When the angels announce that in the birth of this Jesus, here and now, the Prince of Peace is bringing peace on earth, what he's revealing to us is that this ultimate kingdom of peace doesn't come all at once. Instead, Jesus reveals through his teaching throughout his ministry that his kingdom of peace comes as both an already and a not yet kingdom a kingdom that is now and a kingdom that is still to come and in the now the kingdom is like a little seed i was looking today on the internet at pictures of of the seed that would go and grow into a redwood forest you know and it's just a little little tiny thing it looks so insignificant but you put that in the soil and it begins to germinate and grow and ultimately, it will grow and it will grow and will finally become this majestic, beautiful redwood tree. And so too, Jesus says, that's my kingdom. It breaks into the world right now and it starts to grow. It starts to grow in part in our hearts and our lives. And ultimately, when Christ returns, it will be this magnificent, beautiful redwood tree and his kingdom of peace will fill the earth. And, and one day, the day is coming, get this, when there will be a match between the outer peace we desire for the world and the inner peace we desire for ourselves. You know, um, it does matter what's happening in the world around us because sometimes it disturbs the peace within us. But one day, everything around us will be flooded with the love and the beauty of God. And on that day, there will be a match between the peace in the world around us and the peace and the wholeness within us. But that raises a question. How can we get a little bit of that peace now? I mean, how can we begin to experience this peace in the here and in the now? And that's the question I want to close with here. You know, there's another parable that Jesus tells about his kingdom And he he talks about the seeds of the kingdom. You could think about it, the gospel of peace, the gospel that brings peace to the soul, that brings peace with God, that results in peace in the neighborhood. This gospel of peace is being sown. And he says, it's like a little seed. It goes down, it begins to grow up. But as it grows up, it grows up alongside some weeds. And you could think about the weeds as everything that disturbs your peace. I wonder if anyone has any weeds in their life right now that disturb their peace. I was going to ask if anybody is sitting next to any, be- any weeds right now, but I was just kidding when I was thinking that. But listen... The question, what, what the, the threat always is, is as the, the peace that God wants to bring to birth in the middle of this old world. You know, you think about Jesus being born right in the middle of a world where all was not calm. And yet here, the life-giving spiritual power of the kingdom of God, which brings peace, is breaking in. But it begins to grow up among all of these other things that threaten to disturb our peace. So how is it that we can know peace in the midst of a world that is always seeking to disturb our peace. And here is the thing. You will never know peace unless you fight for it. To really actually experience the peace in the midst of a world that's always disturbing and threatening our peace, we've got to fight for it. We've got to work for it. We've got to go after this peace. And I just want to point you to a little text in Philippians chapter 4 that really teaches us about ways we can begin to fight for this peace in our own souls. It's Philippians chapter 4. It's a well-known passage. And if there's anything in Paul's writings that looks something like a how-to manual, it's right here. But you know, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of ways we could talk about that we could be agents of God's peace in terms of how we relate to other people, how we uh, lay down our own lives and extend love and grace and forgiveness to others and truth in order to maintain peace around us. But I want to talk specifically about how we can actually experience God's peace in our own souls and lives. And there's two things that Paul tells us in Philippians 4 that direct us in ways to experience peace. He gives us two practices, two things we can engage in. He says, number one, you need to discipline your mind. If you're gonna know peace, you have to discipline your mind. And look at how he puts it in Philippians 4, verses eight and nine. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's anything of excellence, there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Do you see what he's calling you to do? He's calling you to discipline your mind to think on that which is good and true and lovely and of excellence. And then he says this, what you have learned and received and heard in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Do you see how he's connecting peace that we experience from God and the discipline of our own minds. You know, what you fill your imagination with through social media is almost the inverse of the kind of things that will lead you to peace in your own soul and in your mind. The kind of stuff we are constantly absorbing in the news is the kind of stuff that that is almost the inverse of that which is lovely and true and beautiful. Instead of feeding our minds oftentimes with with the true and the good and and the beautiful, we fill our minds with the untrue, the ignoble, the wicked, the impure, the ugly, the gross, those of bad reputation and of poor quality and blameworthy. And it's no wonder that so many times we lack peace. It's because you and I have spent too much time absorbing that and setting our minds on that which disturbs our peace. Those wounds that we nurse for how they hurt us, we just meditate on that. Uh, sometimes some of you are just, uh, you, you, you think on and you meditate on all of the worst disaster scenarios you can think of, all of the what ifs. And look, if you're if you're thinking on those things, you are not going to feel okay, are you? And neither am I. You know, um, I can remember a couple weeks ago, um, uh, somebody read to me just a little quote uh, from uh, somebody that I I knew from years back. I actually led this person to the Lord, a good friend. I love this person. And uh, I was read something of theirs from Facebook. And it was some statement that they made on Facebook. And I found myself getting so upset by what they were saying that the, the hair on my back of my neck started to like bristle. And then I went to bed at night concocting in my mind what I would say to them. I don't know if anybody else does this. You go to bed at night sometimes meditating on what you're going to say to people that you disagree with. And what does that do? It just, like, it was totally disturbing my peace. You've got to discipline your mind. Listen. Peace is the outcome of a cultivated way of thinking, just like cynicism or paranoia or anxiety or fear is the outcome of a cultivated way of thinking. What we give our attention to, what we think about on a regular basis, what we fill our mind with has the potential to index our hearts to anxiety and fear or to peace. And this requires practice, this is not something you go home and do today and then experience peace. This is not the work of weeks or months. It's the work of a lifetime where you regularly give your mind over to the good things God has given you, the good aspects of that person rather than all the negative aspects of them, the, 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 the beauty in the world. Where you give your mind to those things. You fix your mind. You thank God for those things. You meditate on them. And over a long run, you begin to experience peace. So number one, he calls us to discipline our mind. But secondly, and I think more importantly, he says to draw near to God. He says, you want to know peace, then draw near to the very source of peace. He says, do not be anxious in anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the results? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Listen, the main source of our peace with God is proximity to God. The main source of experiencing the peace of God is proximity to God himself. God is the wellspring of peace. That's why the prophet said, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Or as C.S. Lewis put it, he said this, he said, good things as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get into the water. And if you want joy and power and peace and eternal life, you must get close to it or even into it, the thing that has them. They are not the sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of ultimate reality. And if you are close to it, the spray will wet you. And if you, if you are not, you will remain dry. And so here's the formula for peace. Draw in a disciplined way regularly near to God who himself is the very source of peace. And listen, I just want to point out, this is so different than the self-help books that we have on our shelves at Barnes & Noble or on Amazon. And you know, so, some of you, you think like, Christianity just hasn't delivered for me. I haven't got the peace Have you made it your regular discipline habit over the course of weeks and months and a lifetime of drawing near to God the very wellspring of peace and entrusting yourself to him? This is where we find peace from God himself. Now there's one more thing. It actually, in some ways, it's a little bit inaccurate to say that we need to draw near to God. We do need to do that it's more true to say that God has actually drawn near to us. And this is the true good news of peace that we discover at Christmas is that the creator of all things has entered into creation and has taken on humanity to ultimately go to a cross and to bear our guilt and our shame and our sin to lay down his life fully and unreservedly for us, to bring us into a reconciled, healed relationship with God so that we can know peace with God. And this is the true good news of Christmas is that God has actually come near to us so that we can actually draw near to God and know joy and peace in our own souls. And so on our journey to that final day of Shalom, where we will ultimately know peace in the midst of a world where we're constantly wrestling with those things that disturb our peace. Let's be a community that disciplines our mind to fixate on the good and the true and the beautiful. And let's be a people that draws near to the God who has drawn near to us in Jesus Christ. This time I wanna invite our band up and we're gonna close out our service today by sharing in the Lord's Supper and so if, you, uh, if you've not yet or grabbed a, a bread and cup, little package, you can grab one over at the table over there. But I'd encourage you just to take a minute as we enter into this next song, you can start to prepare uh, those elements by peeling off the top uh, to get at the bread. You can take that out and peel off the top for the juice. But here's what I want you to think in your mind, as you're just handling these tangible physical elements in your hands, this is the regular pointer to us that God Himself, the eternal Word, became flesh to dwell among us. And the fact that these elements are in your hand is a reminder to you that God has come to be close to you. And God is as close to you, he is as present to you in this moment as these elements are in your hand. And so just turn your heart to him right now. And let's just meditate on his goodness. Let's release our anxieties and fears into his hands. Let's pray together. God, as we prepare to share In the bread and the cup, we ask, God, that you would work by your spirit in our hearts, that you would help us to begin afresh, to release into your hands our anxieties and our fears, and we pray that as your people, that we would know something of your peace. We ask this in the name of he who is our peace, who himself has broken down the barriers that separate us from each other and the barrier that separated us from you so that we could be near you and with you. Even Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.